What a delightful opportunity and an enterprise is ours to enjoy spirited singing, to pray into our Heavenly Father, to have the opportunity to engage in the other things that make for Scripture and New Testament worship. And today, how delightful it is that we have this first day of the week to begin another week in the service of our most holy and righteous Father in Heaven. My family and I are certainly again delighted to be back at the Pippin Church today, to be back with our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. It's always an interesting thing to be given an opportunity to be a part of a gospel endeavor elsewhere, but it's always a very special time to be able to come back to, to the people here who, who know and love us and whom also we know and love. It is the case today that as we give thought to a lesson entitled A Godly Father, that you may have noticed that some of the features concerning that are actually rolled into Genesis 18, verse number 19. In that opening book of the Bible, the very first element of the character of the history of this world, we find an interesting statement, a statement that challenges each of us even today, especially those of us who are fathers, to give some thought to matters that can not only impact ourselves, but also our families. By way of introduction, some of these thoughts, it would seem, come before us rather quickly. The family unit is set forth in the Word of God, as we each appreciate, has a very vital and necessary role. So much so that the long-term character of a nation will hinge upon it. And not only that, the short-term character of a nation and in fact of a society also is very fundamentally determined by it. And of course, in terms of an individual's well-being, element of satisfaction and contentment, also it can be said that the family unit will speak much as to how that comes about. In our own nation, we understand the family is in fact under a great deal of hardship at this point. There are many particular arrows that are being flung at it. There are many particular sledgehammers beating away at it from various angles. Pluralism, relativism, the character of so-called alternate family lifestyles, all are in fact etching away little by little at the typical way the family is perceived. Today, let's give some thought to a godly father. Looking, of course, as to what the Scriptures have to say about the father's role in the family and giving some thought to how that can help all of us as men of the congregation especially. Those who are fathers or who at perhaps at some point in the future shall be so, to help all of us appreciate better what God has to say about these matters. It is for those particular comments that this opening slide serves as a reminder of some of what we learn in the opening chapters of Genesis about the man himself. Obviously, a father must be a man. I know that there are those in our society who have begun to think otherwise, but as the Scriptures would say it, the father must be a male. He must be a man. And as such, notice the way God created him. Maybe that will help us appreciate the role and the character and the stature that he occupies in the very nature of the family itself. First of all, the hum humanity was the zenith of God's creation. Although animals had been made on previous days, namely day five, and although made earlier on day six, nonetheless the crescendo of God's creation was the human being. And as such, the man was made in the image of God, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Also, the same is described of the woman in the next verse. Both of these human beings, immortal spirits, made in the image and in the likeness of God. 
you might also notice even beyond that, that man was made with a capacity for physical work. That is to say, the sinews, the muscles, the other characteristics of his body, God gave him work to do, Genesis 2.15, and intended him to do it. In fact, even after sin entered the world, and in fact, the nature of the curse came upon earth, and by the sweat of his brow would he eat bread, still there was the tendency and character of God's demand for work. As you can see, even beyond that, man was given the capacity and skill in regard to his mental abilities. After all, in Genesis 2 verse 20, again, early on in the sacred text, God told Adam, name those animals. That would suggest that not only was he to name them, he was to remember what he named them, and he was to, in fact, share that with the other members of the human family once children were born to he and Eve. In other words, he had the capacity to learn, the capacity to remember, and God expected him to employ it as such. Maybe that too helps each of us as men understand that we have abilities. And God, of course, expects us to use those talents to His glory and to, certainly to His good. You'll notice when sin entered the world, it was expressly said by Paul that the woman, in fact, was deceived in the transgression, but the man wasn't. That does help us see from that text in 1 Timothy 2, verses 14 and 15, even as it sheds light back on the events of Genesis 3, that there was something about the nature of what happened in the character of that fall. Adam sinned. There was no question about that. And Eve did as well, but the nature of their errors was not quite the same. Man, too, made a choice not to remain before God as he should have been. That, of course, was a very negative thing for Adam, just as the negative thing for Eve was certainly also in place. As you notice the next element on that slide, the man was aware by way of shame of what he had done. He tried to cover up his nakedness, and then he tried to hide from God in the garden, but he was unsuccessful at that. And we also thus notice a man, by way of his conscience, is capable of shame, capable, in fact, of expressing or behaving in a way that's worthy of shameful conduct. As you come near the bottom of that slide, the family unit, we find its origination in these same chapters. After seeing the man was alone, God fashioned a woman, brought her to the man, and God joined them in marriage. He, in fact, was the one who, in verses 23 and 24, is under description as the one who joined the man and the woman together. As you give thought then to the family unit, what is man's role in it? What about the father? Many things might be said. We'll try to use our time very carefully and judiciously. But as we look at some of these expectations from the Scriptures, might we begin here? It goes without saying that, of course, a married man has a wife. And one of the first things the Bible, in fact, lays upon the understanding for him is that the first and most needful element in the nature of the healthiness of that family is for him to love his wife. So many things in the Scriptures are reminded of us in regard to that, but might we begin here? Namely, that a virtuous woman is in fact so highly prized in Proverbs 31 verse 10. In fact, her price is far above rubies, the answer to the question asked, who can find a virtuous woman? 
as the Scripture set forth then, a man should appreciate his wife. He should understand that she, in fact, as the preciousness of God's creation, is a blessing to him, certainly a blessing to their family. And as you can see in verses like these, we read in Proverbs 18.22, that very interesting statement about the nature of who can find a lovely or blessed wife. That statement reminds us, doesn't it, that not too many verses later, her price is in fact so highly prized. In fairness, in regard to that statement, in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, even Peter said that the husband is to honor her, appreciative of the fact of who she is, understanding of the fact that she is different from him. Men and women are different. That fact has been the subject of many a textbook throughout the centuries. But that difference is highlighted as the man should be of a viewpoint to appreciate that and have respect and honor and appreciation for her. It is to be noted even beyond that that he is to love her. In Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. With regard to Christ's love for the church, there can be no question because, of course, He gave of Himself, not only to establish her, but to inaugurate her in the formalism and the way that was the very plan and will of God. It is in that context, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives. It is one of the most basic matters in a family unit for those children to appreciate the husband's love for the wife, that she is precious and honored by him, that she is in fact treated as the very special one of his life. No wonder sometimes in the world when children grow up in a family where it's rather clear the husband doesn't love the wife as Christ loved the church. Maybe he mistreats her, maybe he slanders her, maybe he does other things by way of abuse toward her. The children appreciate that. They know very well what's taking place. And yet it runs completely opposite to that which is the decree of the sacred scriptures. As you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 13, there's an entire chapter set forth for the degree of what is the definition of love. Might we begin in verse 4 by noting that charity or love, of course, is something that is described in many different ways. First of all, it suffers long. Love, you see, has an element of endurance to it. It's patient. As I noted earlier, there are things in the family that may from time to time cause a degree of tension. But nonetheless, patience will not only emerge victorious, but it will endure in such a fashion that it will highlight the character of what are the individual matters and they will come together even more strongly in unison. You'll notice many other things Paul said. Not only does it suffer long, but it's kind. It doesn't vaunt itself. Love isn't selfish, you see. Love strives to highlight the character and quality of the other. In addition, you'll notice, love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It does not rejoice in sinful behavior, but it rejoices in that which is the truth of God. Finally, we notice in verses 7 and 8 that love never fails. Just prior to that, Paul had asserted, and so powerfully the fact that it isn't it love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
With regard to all of that, might we say that in a family unit, it should be love as exemplified in that kind of way that will be the hallmark of a strong and sturdy family. As you can furthermore see, Paul in, and rather Peter in 1 Peter 3, 7 does make a comparison that the wife is likened unto the weaker vessel. The husband should appreciate that fact, understanding that in terms of differences, God made them different. And the husband thus should, in fact, appreciate that status and role of her and look upon her with a desire to care for her. We will remember in the Garden of Eden, it was when Adam wasn't there as he ought to have been that Eve made the choice to enter into sin the way she did. It is still interesting that only she was the one that Satan approached. And it was she who entered into conversation with him. No mention is made of Adam. It was in verse 6 it says she gave it to him as well. She went and found Adam and then gave him the forbidden fruit too. We as husbands need to carefully safeguard the integrity of our wife and that of our family, being always careful and mindful that the choices that the world will often make will approach into our family in ways that will lead to inroads that are sinful. And thus we must with an ever-cautious and watchful eye be mindful of our wife, be mindful of our children, and strive to ever keep them in the way that leads, of course, unto everlasting life. Not only should a husband love his wife, he has other responsibilities that too must be appreciated. Taken from Genesis 18 verse 19, we notice that the following description of Abraham is made. I would invite you to read it. Genesis 18 verse 19, there the inspired writer wrote, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. In the long distant time of the past, it was there said of Abraham the following words. On that occasion, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah were in view. And God was aware of the fact that the decision for their destruction had now been made, and God here made the choice, in essence, making the statement of His own reason, that I should inform Abraham of this, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. Isn't that an amazing statement of Abraham? As God reasoned with revealing to Abraham what was about to happen, He says, I know him. He will in fact instruct his family in such a way that they will use this event of Sodom's destruction in a way that will lead to greater godliness of themselves. And as such, it will be a good benefit for them. May we submit that serves as a notable example for all of us who are fathers today. In fact, we are to command our family. Just as surely as that example of Abraham is lifted so highly, the same example might also be found elsewhere that challenges each of us. A family needs direction. Any organization does. Be it a corporation, be it a local community organization, a family. For isn't it still reminded of us in Proverbs 29 that where there is no vision, the people perish. Without vision, without direction, without guidance, the people will perish. And so it is in the family unit that the husband, the father, has been given that responsibility. God specifically said, I know him. 
There was no supposition on God's part. He knew that this information with which he was now to share with Abraham would in fact be shared with other members of that family and would in fact be used as a teaching and an instructive guide. I know him. Even beyond that, isn't it amazing that the commandments that Abraham were to dispense were described like this. They shall keep the way of the Lord. Men, we are to provide that direction and commandment with regard to the way of the Lord. It is sufficient to say that our families will not find that instruction in the world. They will not find it in the public school systems. They will not find it at colleges and universities. They shall find it by our example and by our interest in matters divine. They shall find it as we instruct and guide in the way that is proper and right. Abraham commanded, led, directed his family in that way that was of the Lord. Do you and I do the same? Even beyond that, as we think about the role that the husband and wife play together, the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5 reminds us. As they serve as the leadership in that family, might we not stop or might we pause to note that that husband is specifically given the directive and the order to provide the commandment and leadership in this way. How often do the scriptures of the Old Testament call upon us to remember the instruction of the Father? The instruction of the Father. Now it is admitted that sometimes the law of the mother is mentioned. But here are just a few passages such as Proverbs 1 verse 8, Proverbs 4 verse 1, Proverbs 6 verse 20, all which make mention of the instruction of the Father. Fathers, are we instructing? Are we teaching by way of our own personal example? Are we teaching by virtue of what our children hear us say? Are we teaching by what they see exemplified as top priority in our lives? If so, then our instruction is a very worthwhile thing. And they shall take note thereof, and it shall serve for the benefit that God intended. The instruction of the Father. Children are to thus look to the Father as they appreciate the commandment, as they appreciate the instruction. As you can see, fathers are not perfect. We too make our mistakes. We too will in fact veer off occasionally and do that which we ought not to have done. But our aim even in those times ought to be to recognize the God-given responsibility that's ours and to return as soon as possible to that stature of rightness before God and certainly also before our families. Not only to love our wife and not only to command our family, but notice there perhaps should be more said about this second matter. For in this same text, Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, it does say that this way of the Lord will have as its end to do justice and judgment. A father's instruction then should in fact have as one primary conclusion the reality of both judgment and judgment, or rather justice and judgment. What might be meant by these? Those words in Hebrew literally mean judgment and justice. As you've seen me written, they mean righteousness and justice. When fathers speak, they should of course have on those occasions of commandment, those occasions of setting forth the important matters, they should have behind them the rule of righteousness. 
And they should have behind them the justness of justice. That, of course, doesn't mean that a father can't enjoy a practical joke occasionally or have a lighthearted moment. But when it comes to times of instruction and when it comes to the overall foundation and element with which the father should be appreciated, that it should be characterized as one of an intent for righteousness and one that has an intent for justice. In light of that, that leads us to say that passages like Colossians 3.21 seem to be built on an idea like this one. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. By the activities and by the choices a father makes, he can lead to the discouragement of his children. If they see him act whimsically, if they see him taking things unimportantly or failing to appreciate what are the priorities of life, they are more than likely going to do the same. But if they see in dad that there are some things that are important and some things that are worthy of life's most serious intent, then they will be more likely to appreciate the same. It is with that thought in mind we notice that that word righteousness takes us back four square to the reality of the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 172 still tells us, Thy word is righteousness. And so for Dad to have an intent and focus upon that which is righteous, they must be seeing in Him the reality of its relation to, in fact, God's Word. Do they see it exemplified in His life? Do they see it as a powerful element of what He stands for? If not, it's highly likely they too will have little appreciation of the same. The matter of justice. Notice Dad ought to have an understanding of what's right. That is to say, what in a given situation is just and what is not? What is equitable and what is not? And inasmuch as he should give thought toward that end, that seems to be what was a part of Abraham's way of doing things. As you can see in the fourth place, something else might be noted about fathers. Quite often, texts like those to which we shall now give attention point out that the glory of children is something that relates to the father, of course. Might we will begin in Proverbs 17, verse 6. Where there it makes note that the glory of children relates to the Father. Isn't that interesting? That suggests, doesn't it, some of the following statements. That a father takes pride in his family. It may be that he doesn't always say that. But he has a great deal of pride about his wife. A great deal of pride about his children. The kind of people they are. The choices they have made in life, that for which they grow up to stand. They stand too for what's noble and just and proper and right and godly. Rest assured, a godly father will take the greatest of internal pride and the greatest of internal satisfaction if that be the case. In addition, a father shows that degree of pride and concern and excitement in the ways that those choices of the children when that son or that daughter makes the choice of approaching a situation with a sound mind, with a degree of clear thinking, with a powerful element of godliness as it relates to common sense, the father is proud. Not as if he's prideful in an evil way, but he's thankful. He feels good that that child has grown up in such a way that that person is well set to be a sound citizen for life. 
and is able to rest squarely also upon an appreciation of God's Word. That's one of the greatest essences of fatherhood, isn't it? And in addition to that, we also see, as you can see at the bottom, as a reciprocal response, several passages highlight the respect that the father receives from those children in as much as he has reacted that way. When a father is interested in and excited for his children, their pursuits in life, being godly ones, of course, we find that that's another part of what the father can do and what he should do from reading that book of Proverbs. As you can well imagine, the father then has many things to occupy his attention and to occupy his time. But we aren't finished yet. In the fifth place, although it isn't very much fun... There are those occasions when the father also has an element of correction that ought to be a part of what he does. Children, of course, don't always make the right decisions. They haven't learned by way of experience that certain things are going to lead to their harm and lead to things that are not good. The father, by his wisdom, and perhaps by consultation with his wife, knowing better what may be the case for certain children... He should find the need for correction on occasion. Discipline, if you please. How often does the Bible, in fact, bring to you and me as fathers the issues that surround that idea? For instance, Proverbs 3.12, a godly father. Just as surely as our Father in heaven chastens us, a godly father will correct his children if he loves them. Now, frankly, the text says if he doesn't love them, then he's not likely to correct them. What does that say then about us? Do we find, even though it's unpleasant, do we nonetheless discipline and correct as needful? You can also see in other passages that the motivating factor for that is never abuse. It is never to disgrace them or shame them. It's to teach them. Even in those situations in which that discipline must take on the form of a whipping, or the form of some kind of punishment along that line, it again is not to hurt them, at least physically. It's to perhaps bring them into a form of humility so that they will appreciate that that which they did truly was not good. In fact, it was hurtful, harmful, and it was something that ought not be repeated. And so, as a father instructs, that instruction may take the form of discipline on occasion. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He that spareth the rod hateth his son. Thus, when we withhold that punishment, we really do them no favor for in the long run, they will in fact be led to a greater sense of behavior that is shameful or disgraceful. No wonder then that we must also chasten our children. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11, we notice that correction has the following spirit behind it. Why does a child or why does a father do this? He does it to exhort. He does it to comfort and he does it to charge them. Notice he does not do it to abuse them. He does not do it to in fact shame them in front of their friends or other acquaintances. There's a much higher goal than that in mind. With regard to that kind of element of what a father does, maybe we come to the sixth and final one. We did notice early on that God made man with a capacity for work. And it isn't it still the case that the Bible, both Old and New Testament, sets before us the need for work. 
In fact, look in Genesis 2.15 as well as Genesis 3.17. How that it was to Adam, not to Eve, but to Adam, God said, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Now surely she was made of flesh like he, and she would die just like he would physically. But isn't it interesting, it was to Adam that he was to toil the soil, or to till the soil, toiling with the sweat of his brow to provide for himself and for others. We find later in the Scriptures that men, of course, took upon them the element of labor as Abraham and Lot and Isaac and Jacob and others worked. We perhaps come to passages like these, the provisional character of work. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands, working that which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. The Father thus is to be active, involved in work. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 and 12, twice in that chapter, we have an emphasis laid upon the nature of how that eating follows from one's working. And finally, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, as you and I consider at least our, the fathers in the audience, might we never forget that if we fail to provide for our family, the text describes us as being worse than an infidel. We have not done a very basic duty that God expects of us. With regard to work, perhaps we can close by noting the industry associated with it. Though sometimes the world looks upon work as bad, unhealthy, and unuseful, nonetheless the Bible lifts the industriousness of work to a rather high plateau. So much so that in Proverbs 12.11, Proverbs 13.4, and finally in Proverbs 14.23, all of which we find the fact that satisfaction and contentment and a degree of personal well-being follows from a job well done. And that's something, by the way, that we can assist to teach our children. When a son or daughter realizes that a job is completed and that it's well done, one can look upon it with contentment and satisfaction and appreciate that that is a part of the way God fashioned it and made it. This morning we've looked at fathers admittedly and tried to describe a godly father as he is described in the Bible. As we've concluded the lesson, certainly we should still lift highly the fact that a godly father is a critical element in the family unit. We shall look at the other family members in the weeks to come. But we have begun with the father and in that way we've learned these six lessons. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has given the charge or has been given the responsibility of commanding His children in the way of the Lord and in the way that leads to justice and righteousness. Furthermore, we've learned that He has also been given a task of work and that He should take pride in the family as He is wont to do. All of that reminds us as the lesson closes to ask personal matters and questions of ourselves. What kind of father might you be? What about myself? For all those who will one day be fathers, even if you're just a young boy, these are things you can look forward to incorporating into your life so that your family will also be as God would have it to be. Today, if there might be one in the audience, distance from God by the fact you've never become a child of God, or perhaps you have but have not been faithful to that calling, the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins. He died, in fact, that you might one day spend forever in heaven. If we could be of assistance to you in coming to Him today, 
If you are an alien sinner, come to Him as commanded in that plan of salvation. As you hear the gospel, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His glorious name as the Son of God, and finally to be baptized. At that point, walk faithfully until death. If you have, however, known the goodness of faithful Christian living at one point, but no longer do, why not come back to your first love today? Like the prodigal son who is ready to feed the hogs, you need to come back home. And like he came to his senses, why not you? You too can make a choice to come before if it is a public matter. We'd be happy to pray. God will be honored to forgive. And if today we could be of assistance in either way,